Chapter Twenty Seven of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in December two thousand twenty. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter Twenty Seven Comets, Meteors, Zodiacal Light the remaining members of the solar system must not be overlooked comets which even now to the disordered imagination or rather perhaps to the business instinct of a zadkiel are regarded as portents lost their terrifying character to a considerable extent when the recognition of their periodicity in some cases brought the inference that their motions were subject to the same laws as those of the planets the chief outstanding difference being the eccentricity which though in occasional instances not much greater than those of one or two exceptional asteroids approaches reaches and possibly exceeds unity thus providing highly elongated ellipses parabolas and it may be hyperbolas for the apparent orbits in the first of these cases the comet is periodic but most observed comets belong to the second class or rather cannot be distinguished from it owing to the extreme length and uncertainty of the periods the third case of which there are few absolutely certain instances strictly speaking is that of what may be called temporary members of the system though a really parabolic orbit may also be regarded as that of a temporary member also the first great comet of the period we are now considering was the celebrated 1858 comet of Donati, the finest comet within living memory, though not considered quite so bright as that of 1811. Visible to the naked eye for sixteen weeks, and to the telescopes of the time for nine months, this comet was exhaustively observed. Its brightness, which at maximum surpassed that of Arcturus, was a notable instance of the great increase in actual brightness near the sun which far exceeded that predicted by theory from its relative distances from the earth and the sun its tail or rather tails were well placed for observation and as one after another became visible the main portion curved with two straight tangents the idea suggested by Olbers that these tails were different kinds of matter unequally repelled by the sun seemed almost to require no further proof. The head of the comet was also in violent agitation, throwing off veils of gauzy matter towards the sun to curve back like fountains after a comparatively short time, the general appearance being that of a hollow cone or cones seen brightest at two opposite edges this comet was too early for the spectroscope its brightness was analyzed only by the polariscope an instrument often disappointing in its results in this case the analysis showed no evidence that the brightness although only about three per cent of it could be accounted for by its position was at all intrinsic such as might be caused by a great increase of temperature in careering with increasing velocity through a medium even of great tenuity or possibly by the friction of its agitated parts 
or as was commonly suggested by ignition in the heat of the sun's rays simple reflected light was the unsatisfactory verdict of the polariscope and there was then no higher court of appeal so all that issued from the mass of observations was a very accurate determination of the orbit giving a period of two thousand years in eighteen sixty one the earth passed for some hours through the tail of a comet to the depth computed by Lier from the observations of the discoverer john tebbutt of new south wales and his own at rio de janeiro of three hundred thousand miles there was no other evidence except the observed motion of the comet that the earth had actually passed through the tail which caused no apparent effect electrical or otherwise distinctly traceable to the unusual environment within the next few years two celebrated comets were discovered first designated simply comets eighteen sixty two three and eighteen sixty six one but since the labours of successive investigators were brought to a final conclusion by schiaparelli known as the comets of the perseids and leonids respectively the first of these reached practically the second magnitude while the other was very faint and showed no tail the connection between comets and meteors definitely pointed out by schiaparelli had been in a hazy sort of way present to the minds of investigators for some time before though the original idea of meteors was that they were akin to fire damp small clouds of marsh gas suddenly ignited in the air cladney in seventeen ninety four stated in concrete form a notion vaguely entertained by halley that they were cosmic atoms made white hot by friction in the atmosphere velocities were determined from simultaneous observations sufficiently far apart to indicate the height of the meteor and these velocities turned out to be great enough for bodies moving like planets laplace and others however maintained that they were ejected from lunar volcanoes but the uncertainty was to a great extent dispelled by the marvellous shower of meteors on the night of november twelfth eighteen thirty three the display was at its best in america and at boston it was calculated actual counting being impossible that two hundred forty thousands were visible during the nine hours from the time the shower commenced until daybreak put an end to the sight the illuminating feature of this splendid apparition was the circumstance that all the meteors seemed to come from the same part of the sky the sickle in the constellation of leo all paths accurately drawn diverging from a single point which had no relation to the earth but moved with the stars it was speedily deduced that the meteors were describing orbits round the sun and since a display on a small scale had been seen just a year previously in the old world these orbits must meet that of the earth at the point reached by it on november twelfth meteors were at once recognized as providing a new field of astronomy Humboldt had witnessed a shower almost as brilliant on the same night of the year 1799, and had also noted that the bright paths were directed from a single radiant, but no theory had been placed upon his observation. 
and the first guess at the leonid period by professor olmsted of yale was a half yearly one on the assumption that the aphelion was reached on november twelfth every year but the display in eighteen thirty four was not a great one and each year saw still less and the next conjecture by olbers in eighteen thirty seven was founded on Humboldt's observation and suggested a period of thirty-four years, fixing the next great display in November 1867. The August meteors, or Perseids, were also the subject of inquiry, and the fact that they also appeared annually discredited Olmsted's idea that the Leonids were a cloud of particles with a short period, suggesting instead a ring of particles extending round an orbit nearly, if not quite, intersecting that of the earth at the point reached by it on November 12. Nothing more was done in the way of advance for a long time, in fact, until Professor H. A. Newton took up the investigation at Yale in 1864. Consulting old records, he identified the Leonids with a historic display on October 13, 902, when Tower Mina was captured by the Saracens, and deduced a period of thirty-three and a quarter years from successive appearances, which recurred with a retardation of one day in seventy years. He predicted a fine display for the night of November 13, 1866. Four other periods were found, which would account for the interval of thirty-three or thirty-four years, but the loss of one day in seventy years provided Professor Adams with a method of mathematical investigation, since it was due to the advance of the node of the orbit caused by planetary perturbations. His result, which dismissed as impossible all but the thirty-three and a quarter year period, was not reached until a few months after Professor Newton's prophecy was fulfilled. Preparations had been made in advance. At Greenwich, for instance, the new branch of routine observation was introduced in 1865, and a fair number of Leonids observed. But the great display came on the predicted night in 1866, bringing crowds of meteors, many very bright, and some as bright as Venus. The greatest rate estimated for an hour averaged more than one per second, the actual numbers recorded at Greenwich being 4,858 between one and two o'clock on the morning of the 14th. Schiaparelli's investigation, stimulated by this magnificent display, showed that meteors travel much faster than the Earth, so that their orbits are much larger than that of the earth and their motion like those of comets rather than of planets he next inferred that in general comets and meteors come from outside the solar system are temporarily drawn into it by the sun and occasionally kept within it by the retarding action of a planet Lastly, he identified the orbit of the Perseids with that of the bright comet of 1862. Soon afterwards, Dr. Peters of Altona, from Le Verrier's New Elements of the Leonid Swarm, identified the orbit with that of the comet of 1866, 
Schiaparelli immediately afterwards independently confirming the result. Professor Weiss similarly connected the April Lyrids with a comet seen in 1861, and the Andromedes of late November with Biela's comet. Professor Alexander Herschel took up the subject with enthusiasm, and by 1878 compiled a list of no fewer than 76 comets, known or suspected to be connected with meteor swarms. The underlying principle of this idea of identity, or close similarity, between comets and meteors had made its appearance more than once before, and in 1861 Professor Kirkwood had argued, from the known appearance of Biela's comet in two portions, that the sun had an effect on comet nuclei, whose tendency was to split them up, and suggested that the periodic meteors might be the debris of old shattered comets, whose cohesion being destroyed leaves them nothing but a range of small particles distributed along or near the old orbit. From the fact that the main swarm of the Leonids seemed to take about three years in passing the point of approach to the Earth's orbit, while the Perseids seemed more evenly distributed, Le Verrier argued that these are successive stages of disintegration, the swarm lengthening out until it reaches the stage of a closed ring of particles. He inferred not only that the Perseids were an older formation, but assigned a date for the first appearance of the Leonids in the solar system in A.D. 126, when Uranus, by his calculations, must have been close to the parent comet of the whole system, the comet of 1866 being only regarded as a fragment. But Biela's comet, which appeared in two portions in 1892, had not been seen since, though carefully sought, and it was naturally suggested that perhaps this might be regarded as a crucial test. Previous showers from the point near Gamma Andromedae, where the orbit of Biela's comet appeared to meet the Earth's track, had been noticed on December 6, 1798, and again in 1830, 1838, and 1847. So, Weiss, as we have seen, and independently Darest and Gallet, inferred that the orbits were identical, and that the date would be getting earlier in the year, since, owing to the motion of the comet being retrograde, the motion of the node would be in the opposite direction to that of the Leonids. The Andromedes were duly observed on November 30, 1867. The comet was due in 1872, and Gallet suggested November 28 as the probable date of the swarm of meteors into which the comet might have broken up. It actually arrived on November 27, when the display was nearly as striking as that of the Leonids six years before, the Adromedes or Bielids being slower in apparent motion, as they were travelling to overtake the Earth instead of meeting it. At times they were said to average four or five per second, and some were fireballs apparently as large as the moon. A search suggested by Professor Klinkerfuss to see if the comet itself had gone by during the swarm resulted in the discovery of a faint comet, which, though not Biela's, probably belonged to the system. 
the period of the comet being about six and a half years a return of the swarm was expected in november eighteen eighty five and expectation was more than fulfilled for the swarm where not masked by cloud showed more numerous and larger meteors than that of eighteen seventy two professor newton estimated seventy five thousand per hour in the densest part of the swarm and a density of one to a cubical space of twenty miles edge a near approach to jupiter in eighteen forty one was the probable deciding factor in the disintegration of this system in eighteen ninety two a fine shower of adromedes was seen in america though far less striking than that of eighteen eighty five its appearance so early as november twenty three suggested that this was not the main swarm but an associated branch the next expected displays have failed to appear in any numbers the first in eighteen ninety nine and the next in nineteen o five so perhaps planetary perturbations have so modified the orbit that it no longer passes near enough to the earth to display more than a few stragglers the leonid display expected in eighteen ninety nine also failed as had been predicted by dr johnstone stoney of dublin and dr downing of the nautical almanac office would be the result of perturbations by jupiter and saturn search at the usual dates will be maintained as meteors are more frequent at those special epochs but there is now no definite expectation of any such vivid displays as the various november showers of eighteen thirty three eighteen sixty six eighteen seventy two and eighteen eighty five progress has been made in the direction of accuracy in the determination of paths by the use of a meteorograph a camera directed near the expected radiant so that any meteor bright enough to impress its trail on the plate could be accurately referred to the stellar images surrounding it comparison with a similar photograph of the same region from a different station yielding exact data for the determination of the real path height and velocity of the meteor from the connection now regarded as proved between comets and meteors emerges the certainty that comets are temporary bodies that they break up into smaller comets or streams of meteors and ultimately to some extent are absorbed by more permanent members of the solar system the question whether aerolites meteoritic stones that actually fall on the earth without being pulverized are of the same class is not so well determined Chermak and others postulate a different origin. Some, following Laplace, assume a lunar volcanic source. Others conjecture a source in one or other of the great planets. Others, again, like Sir Robert Ball, attribute them to terrestrial volcanoes of a bygone day, whose missiles, hurled out when the explosive force was far greater than it is now, have been constrained to revolve about the sun in orbits bound at intervals to pass through the point of origin and so in course of time to fall to earth again it has even been supposed that they may come from the sun but no real distinction can be drawn between the meteors that are seen to burn up and those that burst into sizable fragments 
or reach the earth without attaining an explosive temperature. Detonating fireballs have been seen apparently belonging to a known radiant, and aerolites have occasionally fallen during meteoric displays, the coincidence being very likely fortuitous. Professor Newton considered that the larger meteorites, whose paths were traced by him, appeared to have their perihelia in the outer portion of the space between the earth and the sun to correspond more closely with short-period comets and to be more planetary in character than the recognized comet meteor swarms. The pursuit of meteoric astronomy in this country has brought to the fore an amateur observer, W. F. Denning of Bristol, to whom reference has already been made in connection with planetary observations. By unremitting diligence in watching for known showers, and in collating the results of other observers, he has computed radiant points by the hundred, and reached a leading place among the world's astronomical specialists, at a sacrifice of his own time and means, which has lately found recognition in the form of a civil list pension. One of his most striking achievements has been the proof of the existence, long denied as impossible, of a distinct class of meteors, whose radiance remained fixed for months, instead of showing the daily motion of the earth by a gradual shift in the sky. The first hypothesis was that this could only be explained by the assumption that the earth's velocity was negligible in comparison with that of the meteors, but, as Ranyard calculated, this implies a velocity for them of at least 880 miles a second, which is out of the question. Hence, for a long time Denning's discovery was scouted, but the accumulation of evidence still went on, and the fact obtained grudging recognition, while the suggested explanation had to give way, the motion of the meteors, much slower when overtaking the earth than when meeting it, proving that no such enormous velocities were necessary. The contention of Bredikin that the community of radiant is only apparent, and that the successive meteors belong to several different swarms, seems to postulate such a vast number of coincidences as to create an equally refractory difficulty. Professor Turner's explanation is at least plausible, in so far as it gets rid of the fortuitous nature of the coincidences, he attributes the successive swarms from the same apparent, but really slightly different radiant, to be due to the cumulative effect of the Earth's attraction, exercised at regular intervals on neighboring members of the swarm. The details of the explanation are not sufficiently convincing to be regarded as settling the question which still awaits solution. The Perseid radiant has been questioned for the opposite reason, the motion in a period of nearly six weeks for which separate radiants have been computed being palpably greater than that of the Earth in its orbit. But Dr. Kleiber, making due allowance for the Earth's motion and for its attraction, proved that all the radiants belong to a compact group of which the comet radiant is the center. Even so, however, the Perseid stream is of enormous width. We must now resume the consideration of comets. 
the application of the spectroscope was not much too late for Donati's great comet. He himself was the first to obtain a practical result with the new weapon of research, for applying it to a comet which appeared in 1864 and reached the second magnitude, he found the spectrum to consist of three bright bands, yellow, green, and blue, with dark intervals between. This promptly negatived the conclusion suggested by the polariscope observations and proved the existence of luminous gas. In 1868, observing Winnecke's comet, Huggins identified the bands as belonging to a hydrocarbon spectrum, a similar one being produced by electric discharge through a vacuum tube containing olefiant gas. Vogel and Hasselberg increased the resemblance in later experiments by adding a little carbonic oxide. Eighteen comets from 1868 to 1880 showed the same typical spectrum, but it was impossible to imitate it by any other method but electric discharge, as a continuous current showed only the spectrum of the carbonic oxide. But two comets before that period, and some since, failed to show the hydrocarbon spectrum. Those observed by Huggins in 1866 and 1867 showed a continuous spectrum crossed by one green ray, generally associated with nebulae. Comet Holmes, 1892, gave a weak continuous spectrum, but the great southern comet of 1901, which also showed an almost continuous spectrum, stifled the theory that the absence of self-luminosity pointed to a state of decay. In 1874, a much brighter comet, discovered at Marseille by Kodja, not only enabled Vogel and Huggins, with the addition of Predikin, to recognize the typical hydrocarbon spectrum, but also gave Father Secchi at Rome the opportunity of detecting two more bands in the red and violet. It is probable that these should be visible in the other comets also, but for the absorption of the fainter bands by the atmosphere. Zöllner's investigations have caused it to be accepted as a fact that the incandescence of the comet gases is not due to heat but to electricity, the effect of the solar radiation and other changes due to the rapid motion of the nucleus being manifested in this way rather than by a simple increase of temperature. It was Zöllner also who first definitely formulated the physical theory of repulsion to account for the appearance of comets' tails, though, as we have seen, Olbers had suggested the idea of repulsion. Bessel applied it in the discussion of Halley's comet, and Norton in that of Donati. Since gravitational pull depends on the mass of a particle, and electrical repulsion on its sectional area, it follows that, in dealing with very small particles below a certain limiting size, the repulsion increases relatively to the attraction, as the size of the particles diminishes so that, beyond another limit, different for particles of different substances, the repulsion actually overbalances the attraction. Zöllner pointed out that while the more massive nucleus of a comet obeys the laws of gravitation, the very finely divided particles shed from it in an electrified condition 
follow perforce the lines of electrical repulsion and stretch away from the sun in the form of tails. Bredikin, whose enthusiasm was kindled by his observation of Koja's comet in 1874, devoted himself to the subject of this repulsive force, which he computed to be different from what he had computed for other comets a dozen years previously, and a few years later, having completed his investigations of thirty-six well-observed comets, he confirmed an idea, at which he hinted in 1877, by announcing that all comets' tails are divided into three classes, according as the repulsive force is much greater than, nearly equal to, or distinctly less than, the solar gravitation. The actual figures given were, for the first class, fourteen times solar gravity, giving rise to very long, straight tails, for the second, the scimitar tails, a force varying from a half to more than twice the solar gravity from one edge to the other, and having at the axis a value only ten per cent in excess of the opposed attraction, and for the third, the short brush tails, from ten to thirty per cent of the sun's gravity. The third class does not appear to occur alone in bright comets, in fact, it seems that in general more than one type is present. Bredikin was, however, not satisfied, as his predecessors had been, to assume that the classes indicated different kinds of matter, but proceeded to identify them from the relations of the requisite forces which he assumed to be inversely proportional to the atomic weights. The three substances he announced were hydrogen, hydrocarbons, and iron. Of these, iron appears often in meteorites, and its presence in comets is quite possible, and the very width of the brush-like tails of the third class shows that iron could not be the only substance represented, a suggestion that would have been far from plausible. Hydrocarbons had been proved to exist in comets, and so only the hydrogen remained doubtful, as it has never been detected in comets by its characteristic spectral emission lines. The modern ideas of light pressure or radiation pressure, enunciated originally by Fitzgerald, and afterwards by Arrhenius and others, tend to render Bredikin's chemical theory unnecessary, the various modes of action of the electricity itself being quite sufficient to account for the undoubted type variations. But this theory is far from being crystallized into dogma and is still in the hands of critics and experimenters. Five notable comets appeared soon after the publication of Predikin's hypothesis. The first of them was the great southern comet of 1880, conspicuous to the naked eye for eight days, whose orbit so closely resembled that of the famous comet of 1843 that several theories were started to reconcile the apparent impossibility of identifying them as the same object. One very interesting suggestion of Klinkerfus was that the comet appeared in B.C. 371, next in A.D. 1668, and then in 1843 and 1880, a progressive decrease in velocity at each perihelion passage accounting for the shortening of the period. 
it happened that neither the comet of 1843 nor that of 1880 were observed over a sufficient arc to fix their period with any certainty. An appeal to Brady Keane's hypothesis showed that the great tail of the 1843 comet belonged to the hydrogen class, while no such tail, but only hydrocarbon tails, appeared in the new comet. Halley's comet, having preserved its type, was urged as an objection to the suggestion of type modification. The next comet, visible from May 1881 to February 1882, provided another problem, for its elements agreed with those of Bessel's comet of 1807. But the long period of observation asserted a period of not 74 years, but nearly 2,500 years, so it was in this case concluded that the two comets were portions of a parent comet, one of which lagged 74 years behind the other in the same orbit. The introduction of dry plates for photography took place in time for them to be employed in taking pictures of this comet, which were the first really successful comet photographs, though partial success had been reached so long previously as the time of Donati's comet. Of Tebbutt's comet, Janssen secured a very fine photograph, showing the head and two and a half degrees of tail, and Dr. Henry Draper another, showing four times the extension. The latter also photographed the spectrum, as also did Huggins, the result being to confirm the hydrocarbon identification by additional lines beyond the visible spectrum, and also to confirm the polariscope in regard to the presence of Fraunhofer lines denoting reflected sunlight. Comet Schäberle, though not so bright as that of Tebbert, was easily visible with it in the northern sky, a very unusual phenomenon. In the following year, 1882, Comet Wells made its appearance, and though not very conspicuous, as it kept near the sun in direction, showed one feature quite new in comet spectra. On approaching the sun, the carbon bands died out, being replaced by the bright D-line of sodium, observed first at Dunecht and confirmed by Vogel at Potsdam. Hasselberg argued from this change of spectrum that the luminosity of the vapors must be electrical, as, if the only effect of the sun were to raise the temperature, the sodium line might certainly become visible on that account, but the hydrocarbon lines would also persist. Other peculiarities were revealed by a successful spectrum photograph secured by Huggins. The last of the five comets was discovered independently by several observers in September 1882, and watched right up to the limb of the sun at the Cape Observatory. After passing the sun, it was easily visible in broad daylight, though still quite near the sun, and was thus visible for three successive days. Its path also was so similar to those of the comets of 1843 and 1880 that it seemed to afford another step in Klinkerfus' suggested history and the theory of retarded motion by a resisting medium near the sun was freely urged again. But in this case, the velocities before and after the perihelion passage were carefully compared and found to show no trace of such a diminution. 
it was observed moreover to a greater distance from the sun than any previous comet nearly five hundred million miles the whole arc of observation covering three hundred forty degrees kreutz ultimately deduced a period of about eight hundred years not agreeing well with those of the other two comets of possibly common origin but the difference in the length of the orbit is not an objection to the idea of a single parent body since each fragment would necessarily suffer variations of constants peculiar to itself and in elongated orbits of this kind the most likely alteration would be the extent of elongation or major axis rejecting as probably erroneous the earliest member assumed by klinkerfus whose inclusion is a distinct violation of the historic account of aristotle this made four members of the same family and a fifth was discovered at cordoba in 1887 one other comet is generally assigned to the same group the one seen and photographed close to the sun during the egyptian eclipse of 1882 but the theory of disruption in this particular group received strong confirmation in the great comet of 1882 for early in october the nucleus began to divide first into two condensations then into three and then four three months later five nuclei were seen in a row like pearls on a string by the late dr common at ealing moreover professor barnard in october had seen six or eight distinct cometary masses quite near the comet's head the spectrum of the comet behaved like that of comet wells but showed in addition to the sodium line six bright iron lines in the yellow and green thus actually confirming an assumption underlying bredekin's hypothesis in regard to his third type the dunecht observers copland and lose who made this discovery also computed the velocity from the displacement of the lines from the sodium line alone tolonov nice confirmed this spectroscopic determination of velocity which agreed very well with that computed from the actual positions of the comet a strong testimony in favor of the spectroscope for line-of-sight investigations as the comet receded from the sun the sodium lines gave place to those of hydrocarbon as might have been expected another interesting comet discovered by very successful searcher w r brooks of geneva new york was seen by barnard at lick observatory to have thrown off four fragments two very ephemeral one remaining visible for a month and the last more than three months all however fading from sight before the parent comet which has since returned alone in 1896 and 1903. The year 1892 saw seven comets visible together. Of these, the brightest was only of the third magnitude, discovered by E. Swift, the photographs of which by Barnard and W. H. Pickering showed a great advance in that branch of astronomy. The accompanying plate is a recent example of Barnard's careful work another of the seven was the first comet actually discovered by photography being found by professor barnard to have impressed a faint trail on a photograph of stars in aquila another interesting comet of the year was discovered by a london amateur 
Edwin Holmes, and was remarkable for two features. One, a series of peculiar physical variations, including an unexpected brightening for two days, when it had already faded considerably, having been discovered after perihelion passage. The other, an eccentricity almost low enough for a minor planet, its orbit being also entirely between those of Mars and Jupiter. One conclusion of W. H. Pickering from observation of the comet 1892-1, E. Swift, was a solar repulsive force, nearly forty times that of gravitation, or three times as great as that required by Bredekin's first type, and about double of the limit assigned from theory by Schwarzschild as the maximum possible effect of light pressure. Hussey also found a repulsion nearly as great in the case of another comet, 1893-2. But the light pressure theory is not the only one, as we have seen. Fessenden in 1896 supposed a negative charge on the sun and on the particles of the tail, and a positive one on the nucleus. J. J. Thompson in 1902 suggested that if the sun's rays induced the comet to give off negative ions, these would form a luminous tail. It is not clear how the sun's rays would act, but it is possible that the ultraviolet rays might cause the emission of negative ions, which would be repelled by Hertzian waves, if any such were sent out by the sun. Another theory depends on radioactivity in the nucleus itself, different forms of emanation giving rise to different tails. Among these theories it can hardly be said that one really holds the field. Radioactivity in some form seems the most promising, perhaps because it is so revolutionary in regard to previous physical notions. Meanwhile, an American prize fund awards medals and prizes for cometary discoveries, and within the last five or six years, A. F. Lindemann of Sidmouth has, by offering premiums for such work, induced various computers to work out the definitive orbits of neglected comets, one of which, 1886-1, is claimed by Svestrup to be hyperbolic, and to suggest radiation pressure as affecting the observations. C. J. Murfield of Sydney, an assiduous worker in the same field, had already announced at least two hyperbolic comets, but not so well observed as 1886-1, which was visible for several months. The brightest comet of the last twenty years was the southern comet of 1901, not seen further north than the Lick Observatory, but very bright in the southern hemisphere. The next interesting return expected is of Halley's Comet, which, according to a recent analysis by Messrs. Cowell and Cromelin of Greenwich Observatory, is due to reach perihelion again by the middle of May 1910, a date agreeing closely with that predicted by Pontecoulon. Before leaving this chapter, we may note that the year 1902 saw not only the largest meteorite for many years in the British Isles, the Crumlin meteorite, over nine pounds in weight, but also the largest meteorite known to be in existence, the Mexican meteorite, measuring roughly 13 by 6 by 5 feet, and weighing about 50 tons, consisting mostly of iron, with a fair proportion of nickel, 
a very little cobalt and phosphorus and traces of sulphur and silicon we must also mention very briefly before leaving the consideration of the solar system two other almost certainly related phenomena the zodiacal light and the gegenschein or zodiacal counterglow the first is a faint luminosity frequently noticed after sunset or before sunrise under favorable conditions near the equinoxes especially in low latitudes often visible all night in the tropics extending along the direction of the zodiac or ecliptic broader at the horizon but narrowing towards its visible extremity it is supposed to indicate the presence of a vast concourse of atoms or corpuscles forming an enormous lens-shaped envelope to the sun either as distant extension of the outer corona or possibly impalpable remains of comets and meteors gradually drawing nearer to a final absorption as fuel into the solar fires one of the numerous theories now discarded as to the source of the maintenance of solar heat was on these lines suggested by j r meyer but whatever the nature of the zodiacal light the bodies if such they be offer no measurable resistance to the passage even of a comet and an atmospheric explanation would seem more plausible could one be found to account for the invariable plane of the phenomenon which is the main argument for its being a solar or at any rate non-terrestrial appendage the gegenschein also belongs to the ecliptic and is a very faint luminous patch about twelve degrees by nine in extent sometimes seen in the direction exactly opposite to the sun it is generally taken to represent some effect of the earth's cone of shadow or of the sunlight just beyond the shadow but the details are uncertain it has been considered probable if not certain of late years that the zodiacal light and the gegenschein are not distinct phenomena inasmuch as they have at times been seen at favorable stations such as arequipa connected by faint zodiacal bands leading to the inference of an extension of the formation whatever it may be far beyond the earth's orbit it has been argued in support of the zodiacal light being distinctly a solar appendage that it is only approximately an ecliptic phenomenon newcomb in 1905 observed it due north at midnight from an alpine summit and previous observations had connected it rather with the sun's equatorial plane than with the ecliptic it has however been photographed at heidelberg and at flagstaff and the question of its axial plane ought to be settled in that way before long if it is clearly zodiacal it may probably represent by-products waste material left behind in the evolution of the system from the original nebula if it can be referred to the sun's equator it is not impossible that the solar repulsive force can act at a distance greater than one hundred million miles in any case the light is pronounced on spectroscopic evidence to be reflected sunlight witnessing the presence of particles of some sort and we must await the result of further investigations to determine its actual position distance and extent end of chapter twenty seven